During this Easter season, we have set ourselves down with John and have asked him to tell us the stories of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances during the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. He has told us stories about Mary Magdalene, the apostles without Thomas, the apostles with Thomas. And today, John is telling us about the time when Jesus took his show on the road. The setting for our story this morning is, this, is the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, better known as the Sea of Galilee. We have left Jerusalem and find ourselves now in Galilee. The rural region north of the big city of Jerusalem, where Jesus spent the majority of his time prior to his death. He was well acquainted with the water in that sea. He had scolded it when it acted up. He had walked on it. He had sought rest on its smooth back. And now he was back for a barbecue on its beach. Jesus had returned to Galilee because the disciples had finally left the locked room in Jerusalem where he had met them the first two times, and seven of them were now fishing in the boats they had once abandoned, with the familiar nets rubbing against their once calloused fingers. It must have been a surreal experience for them to be fishing on that water again, back where it all began when several years earlier a stranger stood on the shore and called to them. They might have even flirted with doubt in their minds about whether it had all been a dream, had they stumbled like Lucy and Edmund into some ulterior universe where time was counted differently? Had it really been years? Because fishing on those waters again, it must have felt like mere moments had passed. They had seen Jesus twice, twice since his resurrection, and yet there was still so much confusion about what had happened and what was going to happen. With so much uncertainty clouding their minds, the act of fishing must have been therapeutic. The familiar sound of the waters lapping against the beach in their boats, the familiar smell of the salty air, the familiar wind forcing them to almost shout their conversation, the memory in their muscles when casting a net, the familiar feel of the sun on their backs and bobbing wood under their, under their feet. All of this must have been calming for them. The familiarity freed their minds to process what they had experienced while they were focused on other things. Peter's decision to go, verse, to go fishing in verse 3 was not the denial of Jesus it is often portrayed as being. This was not a Jonah moment. Jonah, if you recall, had been told by God to go to Nineveh and promptly booked a one-way cruise to Tarshish, a city in the very opposite direction of Nineveh. The seven disciples were not headed to Tarshish, as it were, when they picked up their nets and went back to fishing in Galilee. They needed space and time to process, and Galilee gave that to them, and Jesus gave them Galilee. John does not record this in his gospel, but the tradition which Mark and Matthew do record was that Jesus told his disciples through Mary Magdalene to go to Galilee and to wait for him there. They were in Galilee, presumably at Jesus's command, and who knows how long they had been waiting. Eight days had passed between Jesus's first appearance to the disciples without Thomas 
and his second appearance to them when Thomas was present. And Peter, the disciple who suggested the fishing trip in the first place, would have been particularly distressed by any delay in Jesus' arrival. We'll look at Peter's story more closely next week. But Peter had denied Jesus three times during the sham trial that resulted in Jesus' crucifixion. Even though he had seen Jesus twice already, he had apparently not yet had the opportunity to pursue reconciliation with him by begging forgiveness for his failure. That will come next week. But imagine how his apology must have burned in his body in the meantime while he sat there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee waiting for Jesus to show up. Fishing was a respite for them. And Jesus' appearance on the shore as it's recounted for us in verse 4, was a relief. He had not come to Galilee in pursuit of the disciples to discipline them. This was not God coming to the disciples as he had to Elijah while he was hiding in a cave in the mountains in order to ask them, what are you doing here? Now, this was God coming to his children in pursuit of reconciliation and restoration. Jesus had left them once already when he died, and they were devastated. He was alive again now, and hope was starting to build within their chests. But he was going to have to leave them again. And from the shore of the Sea of Galilee, we see him preparing his disciples for his imminent departure and their future ministry. We would do well to pay attention to this interaction with the disciples here because it is one of his last. And Jesus uses it to communicate a fundamental truth about the nature of of humanity. We are dependent creatures. We are contingent creatures, subject to the many chances and changes of this life. We are unnecessary creatures. Only God is necessary. In other words, we can do nothing apart from him because we are nothing apart from him. We can accomplish nothing without his blessing. We don't even exist apart from him. At its outset, Scripture has been trying to get us to understand this about ourselves. In Genesis 2, we are told the story of how God created the first human being. We are told that when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God's breath filled Adam's lungs so that the air passing in and out of his lungs was actually the breath of God. Every breath he took was a gift, a gift that every human being since has inherited. The air in your lungs that causes your chest to rise and fall this very moment is none other than the breath of God animating you, a fragile man or woman of dust. It's the reason why the psalmist describes death as God taking back his breath. Everybody dies on an exhale. Jesus even scandalously acknowledged being a recipient of this gift of life as one who took on flesh. All throughout John, Jesus is telling his disciples that he is unable to do anything apart from God the Father. He flat out says in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. In John 18, 28, he says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. 
And in John 14, 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Those are just three examples of Jesus' understanding of his dependence on God as one who is fully human. There are several more from the Gospel of John alone. Jesus understood that as a human being, he did not speak, act, or even breathe apart from God's permission and provision. And it bred in him not a low self-esteem, as one might expect, or an itch to create an identity for himself apart from God. It bred in him contentment in whatever situation he was in, gratitude for whatever he had, peace that surpasses understanding, and a defiant joy. Those are qualities that can sustain a person through the most difficult life, the kind of life the disciples were about to endure. Many of them would be imprisoned, mocked, beaten, and eventually murdered by the state, like master, like servant. And what they needed, what every Christian needs, particularly those living in the midst of a pandemic and financial ruin, is contentment, gratitude, peace, and joy. But these character traits only begin to grow out of the profound recognition that apart from God, you actually have and are nothing. It's why Jesus began his conversation with the disciples in verse 5 by asking them whether or not they had any fish. He knew they didn't have any fish. Even more, he had fish, and he was grilling it on the beach. But he asked the question nonetheless because he was drawing them out and helping them to see their great need of him. Their greatest strengths could accomplish nothing apart from him. The disciples certainly found this to be true when after fishing all night on the Sea of Galilee, they had caught nothing, not a single fish. These were professional fishermen, mind you, but they caught not a single fish the entire night. Again, John mentions light and darkness here as a literary tool to make a theological point. They were fishing at night. And even though it was not uncommon for fishermen to fish at night so that they could immediately bring their haul to the market that same day, still the mention of night and day is not necessary for the integrity of this story. John mentions night and day because it was intended to reflect the state of humanity apart from God. Like these fishermen returning to shore at daybreak with empty nets and weary, and weary bodies, we are empty-handed and living in darkness apart from God. Despite all our toil, we seem to have nothing to show for it, nothing that would truly last. We have seen with our own eyes how everything can change in the short span of one month. We are an incredibly fragile people. Even professionals are rendered dumb in the field they best know. All things, all knowledge, all success comes from God. And Jesus demonstrate this by telling, demonstrates this by telling the disciples to cast their nets on the other side of the boat, the right side. They do it because they've got nothing to lose at this point in the day. And the result is a huge catch of fish, 153 of them to be exact. It was too heavy of a load for them to be able to haul it in on their own, and yet the net remained intact. 
It didn't tear under the weight of the load. It was a gift. It was all a gift. And Jesus is the giver. From him and through him comes life itself, illuminating our darkness and giving success to our feeble efforts. The miraculous catch of fish was so significant to these men who had fruitlessly wearied themselves in the dark that the disciple whom Jesus loved knew immediately that the man calling to them from the beach again must be Jesus. He does not ask Peter, is it Jesus? No, he tells him, it's Jesus. He's convinced of this because he knew that only Jesus could fill their nets with fish. And Peter, stripped for work, puts on his robe in order to meet Jesus, launches himself overboard and swims to shore where we see the character of the one to whom we belong and to whom we are deeply indebted. He is a gracious host to all who come to him. Already he had bread and fish waiting for them. And he beckons the anxious, fearful, weary disciples to come to breakfast, to have their souls and bodies refreshed. He has no want for himself, but satisfies the needs of those who look to him. He lacks nothing. He fed 5,000 men with a mere five loaves of bread and two fish and still had 12 baskets to spare. He's more than enough. He's all that we have and are. In, his, in this life, we are his guests. We breathe his air. We eat his food. We sleep under his roof. He is our host. And this is true of all people, but rarely acknowledged, even by those of us who call ourselves Christians. Many, if not most of us, believe deep down that we have earned what we have. We earned it by the sweat of our brow, the intellect of our minds, the strength of our arms. We earned it through long hours and late nights by burning the candle at both ends. We lifted ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's the American gospel. But such a position breeds contempt for those who have no bootstraps for those who do not have what we have. Such a position breeds an anxiety that someone is going to take from you what is yours, what you have earned. Such a position breeds boasting and pride. And the Apostle Paul has one question to ask. He asks it in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Jesus spends some of his last hours with his disciples trying to get them to acknowledge their utter dependence upon him. Because it's a truth that when embraced, breeds contentment, gratitude, peace, and joy. You hold more loosely those things which were given to you in the first place, and you become more willing to host those who live without food, shelter, or friends because you see them in the same way that God looks upon you with love and compassion. It is a transformative truth that apart from God, you have and are nothing. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out into the valleys and hills, 
a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, though, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. You shall you shall um, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.